The last time I preached before I went to India, we started this short series on Jeremiah. We started with the commissioning of Jeremiah. And since we were commissioning missionaries that day, it was very appropriate to start then. That's a few weeks ago. Uh, We're now here, and Jeremiah has been commissioned, and we're going to explore the first prophetic message that he said that's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 2 and goes through to the beginning of chapter 3. Now, before we dive into Jeremiah, he's not the most well-known Bible book that Christians are aware of, and so it'd be helpful to orientate ourselves with, first of all, Jeremiah's context, what his purpose was, and then we'll be able to explore his first message. So Jeremiah was a priest who started his prophetic ministry during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah began his reign very well. Uh, He instigated and encouraged a major revival that brought many blessings to the people of Israel. However, by the time Jeremiah was called, the rot had set in. The people were worshipping idols alongside the living God. This is important for us to understand. So we're not talking about outright rejection of God, but compromise. Worshipping idols alongside worship in the temple. And this is one of the key relevances for Jeremiah to us. You see, for many modern Christians, it's not rejecting God outright that's our biggest problem, though for some that is. No, for most of us, it's the placing of modern-day idols such as wealth or relationships, careers or addictions, any number of modern-day idols, we put these alongside our church going. And I think this is by far the bigger spiritual danger for most Christians. You see, the offence of the gospel has always been worship Christ and Christ alone. Worship no other. The seduction of the devil is you can worship Jesus and. And then Satan will give us any number of alternatives. This is exactly the problem that was happening in Jeremiah's day. They were worshipping Yahweh in the temple, but alongside, sometimes physically alongside, within the temple bounds, they were worshipping idols. Satan would rather have us not go to church. But if we do insist on going to church, he's quite happy then to fill our lives with any number of modern-day idols. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, is a call and a warning. It's a warning against the peril of idols and a call back to the exclusive heart relationship with the living God. So that's the context of Jeremiah. People of God were drifting away from God only to compromised worship. But what was Jeremiah's purpose? What did God want him to do? Well, He makes that clear, God makes it clear in the words of his commissioning, Jeremiah's commissioning in 1 verse 9 and 10. God says, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So Jeremiah's purpose is clear. He will be given words, God's words, to uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow all that opposes God. But also, 
Jeremiah will be given God's words to build up and to plant, to call back this wayward people into a personal living relationship of worship to Christ. Now on the balance, when you read the book of Jeremiah, it's very much rooted to the tearing down and the destroying. There's very much a bias like that. In fact, you have to look very hard in the book of Jeremiah to find any of the positive building up. He's your traditional stereotype prophet of doom. And it is with good reason that Jeremiah is called the prophet of tears. So you have to work quite hard to find the positives in Jeremiah. They are there. But, but the reason why Jeremiah spent so much time in his prophet of doom mode was because of the ever-hardening hearts of God's people. Well, this is key to understanding Jeremiah. You see, there's one verse that sums up the listeners that Jeremiah was trying to get through. And that verse is found in Jeremiah 17, verse 19. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Right? This verse sums up the people of Israel at that time, and it sums up us today. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can understand? Jeremiah spends all his times cutting through this deceit and laying bare the heart condition of the people of Israel. And not only did they refuse to listen, but they became irritated and threatened, and they verbally and physically attack Jeremiah. Jeremiah ends his days kidnapped and dies in a foreign land. Now Jesus recognized that in his ministry he was dealing with exactly the same heart condition. Matthew 13 and 15, Jesus says, For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. See, no different between Jeremiah's day, Jesus' day, and our day. The listeners to the word of God have deceitful hearts and calloused hearts. This is what Jeremiah exposes and why he got in so much trouble. It's also what Jesus exposed and why they put him on the cross because he exposed the hard and calloused hearts of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. So, with this as our background, what does Jeremiah say in his first prophetic message? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Jeremiah starts his prophetic ministry by painting a picture of the ideal. Here God reminds his people of their first love, of how when God first rescued them out of Egypt and out of slavery, that they were devoted to God, of how they loved him as a bride loves her groom. God's people were so devoted to him, they even followed him gladly through the dry and harsh desert. For God had made them 
his beautiful bride. They were like the choicest of fruits from a bumper harvest. And God happily protected them from dangers in the wilderness. They were devoted and besotted by the living God who had rescued them from slavery and was their protection. And this is the ideal. It's the ideal for all the people of God. It's the ideal for us in and through Christ. A people devoted to God as a bride to her husband-to-be and the covering and the protection of the living God over his bride. However, because the heart is deceitful above all things, by Jeremiah's day, they were a million miles away from this ideal, which is why, sadly, he spends so much time bringing into open their deceitful heart in the hope that they would repent and change. Verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? that they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through this barren wilderness? Three things to note in this paragraph. The first thing is that God's people have strayed. The listeners' fathers and the listeners themselves had strayed far from the living God. As sheep can stray from a flock, and as a faithful wife can stray into unfaithfulness, so God's people, the people of Israel, were straying from their God. And why? Have they found fault with the living God? Did God let them down? Did he break any of his promises? Did he turn his attention away from Israel to other nations? No. 100% no. They could find no fault with God, the fault lays squarely at the feet of a people who strayed from their heavenly father. And the third thing that we learn here too is that God's people were becoming as worthless as the idols that they worshipped. Not only had they strayed, not only was there no fault with God, but they were becoming as worthless as the idols they chase after. Verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. We read, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. They've exchanged their glory. Imagine a bride entering the church and walking down the aisle, a modern-day bride, and, and the groom is nervously standing at the front. As the music starts, he turns and looks down the aisle and the most beautiful vision of loveliness is walking down the aisle. Those of us men who are married can remember that day very clearly. And it was the dress and the smile through the veil and the flowers and the bridesmaids and the music. And it was wonderful. Now imagine a different scene where this time the bride walks down the aisle And this time, wearing a shoddy, ill-fitting dress, a dress that's dirty and torn. And the bride herself, unwashed, dishevelled, unkept, all by choice. And this is why the cry of God's heart is, why have you exchanged your glory for the dirt and the grime of worthless idols? And in all this, this is a reminder to us not to stray after worthless idols. Now, many of us in the West think we don't have a problem with idols. When I was in India, idols were everywhere. 
there was a cobra idol that was about twice as tall as the Cromwell fruit. It was huge, very spectacular. We passed a temple, which was a mountain that they they were spending over a billion rupees on this temple, Hindu temple. Out in the middle of the paddy fields, there was the monkey god being built that was, again, um, tall as a three-story building. And when we were up in the hills, in the forest, you know, beside the road, there'd be a little, little altar with some food and some flowers that had been offered to the gods of the forest. And that's what we think idols are. And they are a problem in those sort of cultures. But we think we have no idols, but, but we do. We have modern-day idols. John Calvin, who's the founder, uh, one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church, said it so well when he said, our hearts are idol factories. They love to produce idols. So maybe for some people, well, rugby is an idol. you know, And they just love it when the All Blacks win. Now how do we know what is a healthy interest and enthusiasm for All Blacks and when their winning becomes an idol? Well, the key test for any idol, modern or ancient, is how do we react when that idol is threatened? Because when that idol is threatened, it will kick and scream and make your life miserable until you put it back where it is. So with the All Blacks losing, if you're a fan and it's in perspective, you'll be upset. You'll be concerned. You might not have slept well last night. And you might be a bit down today. But you'll get over it. Whereas if rugby is an idol, you will be devastated. It's like the world has just dropped out of your universe. And you'll be grumpy, like really grumpy, <laughs> with the family and the kids and all sorts of things. You see the difference? There's a fine line, isn't it? Another example, what about children? You know, Do we make our children or grandchildren idols? Now, as parents, we love our children, it's good and right, but sometimes we put them before Christ. Now, how do we know? Well, one of the measures is what happens when our child is threatened. Let's say that our, our 10-year-old son's been bullied at school. Terrible thing. Now, any good parent would be right to be upset about that and, and go to the school and do all sorts of things. But if that parent comes roaring in like thunder and screaming and carrying on and threatening all sorts of stuff, you know what I'm talking about. That's a disproportionate reaction. And because the heart is deceitful above all things, we justify this disproportional reaction. And sometimes we need a very wise spouse or someone who cares to point this out. God could give you all number of examples where something good crosses the line and becomes an idol. And often we don't see that. Finances, a mortgage, our careers. Now, it's good to have a good career and be excited about it. But if you're made redundant, that's hard. You know, it's difficult. And it might take quite a while to get over it. But if the bottom of your universe drops out, if you have to turn to drink or some other substance to get you through it, if your marriage crumbles around that, then your career, in all doubt, has become an idol. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's so hard. It's so hard sometimes to know when we flick that switch, and that good thing has become more important than Jesus and an idol. And this is what Jeremiah is warning us against. In some respects, it's a lot simpler when there's a wooden object of, of, a, of a male figure that has you know, gold and all that sort of over and people offer sacrifices. That's easy to identify. But it's our modern idols and crossing the line that is very hard to identify. 
And so, when it comes to straying. Now, before our conversion, before we met Christ, all of us had strayed. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Before we met Christ, we had turned to our own way. We were straying. But the wonderful thing is, the good news of the gospel, is that instead of us receiving the punishment we deserve, Christ took it upon himself and he reached into our lives to make himself real to us. He left the 99 sheep in the sheepfold. He came out to seek us and he threw us on his shoulders and joyfully carried us home. They did so with a back scarred and smarting because of our sin. But he did it gladly. It's the same Jesus who reaches out and takes us by the right hand and and leads us into the presence of his heavenly Father. But he does it with a hand that is nail-pierced and scarred. I mean, that's the good news of the gospel. And that's how we come into our heavenly Father's presence. But we need to be careful, because even from here we can stray. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, talking to Christians. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, to the good news of the gospel, to what we have believed, so that we will not drift away. It's very easy for us to drift away after idols. And again, in Hebrews 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Drifting away, turning away, this is how we can stray from the living God. And notice that the that the writer of Hebrews has the same warning as Jeremiah and Jesus. What is the root cause of us turning away? Well, in Hebrews, it's an unbelieving heart. Deceitful heart, a calloused heart, an unbelieving heart will all lead us astray if we do not return to our first love. And not only this, but Jeremiah reminds us that there is no fault with God. If you feel distant from God, guess who moved? It's not him, is it? He is faithful. We cannot find fault with God. We cannot blame him for our troubles. Hebrews 13 verse 5, especially the second part of this verse. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. His promises are everlasting. We cannot wander away from God and then point back and say, well, it was his fault because he didn't do this or he let this happen. No, no, we do not find fault with God. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He never breaks his promise. In that first verse of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, that first part shows us also something about idols. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. It's the love of money has become an idol for some folk. It's not money. Money is neutral. It can be good or bad. But the love of money means that we've turned it into an idol. And we will become as worthless as the idol that we worship. So how do we pull this message together? What are our take-homes? Well, we've talked about three. 
the warnings against straying. There is no fault with God and a warning that we become worthless as the idols we worship. But three things I want to finish with. First of all, we've seen the ideal. Jeremiah used the image of a bride and a groom. And the bride is devoted to a husband-to-be, and that describes our relationship with Christ. In Ephesians, uh, the end of chapter 5, Paul describes the church, us, as the bride of Christ. And he makes us beautiful. Yet we can stray. And so Jeremiah is a call back to our first love, to devotion. And that was actually the main thrust of my first message in Jeremiah about a month ago. We talked about Jeremiah's commission. And we talked about the great commission in in Matthew 28. But then I said there was a, a greater commission again, the greatest commission. And it's in Jeremiah 30, verse 21, the greatest commission. For who is he who will devote himself to being close to me, declares the Lord. Who is he or she who will devote themselves to being close to me? That's our greatest task. You know, we can serve God in all sorts of ways, and that's good and it's right. But our greatest task is to be devoted to Jesus, devoted to Christ. We've seen the ideal as a bride devoted to her husband-to-be, Christ is saying to us this morning through Jeremiah, return to your first love. That's the first take home. Second take home is to guard your heart. The heart that we have is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Now, when we ask Christ into our life, he comes in and gives us a new heart. We are born again. That heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. But there is a residue of that deceitfulness that we need to keep weeding out and watching out for. Above all else, guard your heart. Jesus summed it up well in uh, Luke twelve thirty four. For where your treasure is, there you will your heart be also. If our greatest treasure is anything but Christ, it is an idol. And it will eat us away and we will become eventually as worthless as it. However, if Christ is our greatest treasure, then his worth becomes our worth. His worthiness becomes our worthiness. And all things work together for good, for his glory and for our blessing. And that's why we take Proverbs 4.23 so seriously. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Finally, want to plant a seed, seed of revival. So I've been thinking and pondering and praying about what revival would look like in Cromwell. You know, for the last 12 months I've been saying, Lord, what would it look like for revival to come to this church, to this town, to, to this region? And I go back historically and you look at the, the great Welsh revival in, in 1903 and further back to the Great Awakening in the States. And at the moment in China you have the longest recorded revival in history. (laughs) In central China, people have been coming to faith in outstanding numbers and through wider. And what's at the root? What's at the root of revival? It's when the people of God repent that revival is initiated 
And revival is sustained as the people of God continue to repent. When I was in China 2016, uh, working with underground church and working with an underground Bible college, which is a story in itself, at the end of the week, I had the privilege of, of, of being asked to lead communion with these young men and women who were giving up so much for the Lord. Very humbling. And I talked to my translator and, and, and showed him the order of service, and he said, that's fine, but just make sure you include a good space for people to repent, to pray for forgiveness. I thought, well, that's very scriptural and very good, so I did. And so we came to that stage, and, and they stood up, and then all of them started to pray their own prayers. And it was intense. <laughs> and before long, there were tears. And I was thinking, this is so unpresbyterian. <laughs> and I said, this is so wonderful. <laughs> and then I, and I quietly said, to, after forever, I quietly said to the interpreter, is, is it time to move on? And, and he said, no, no, give them some more time. And, and my, man, it was an experience I'll never forget. And these people that had given up so much, and you could not fault them. I mean, we were in this compound. We were in a working factory. The Christian owner had given a five-story administration block to the Bible college. These young men and women would come in at the beginning of the year, and then 10 months later they would leave. And they were there studying God's word. And they wanted to be missionaries and pastors and youth leaders. And we had the privilege of, of teaching them the Bible for a week. And yet, I tell you, they could repent. <laughs> and so as we go through Jeremiah, my challenge to me and to you is, hear the call of this prophet to repent. Don't just think it's the person sitting next to you that needs to repent, no matter how worthy they do. Because our heart is deceitful above all things. Pray, Lord, what idol am I holding in my heart that I need to repent from? What area of my life have I been hiding from you that I do not want you to see? Help me want to repent. If we want revival in this church, in this town, in this region, in this country, then it starts with God's people and it starts with repentance. Let's pray.